Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, my name is Joe Armstrong, and I am so very pleased to bring you Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, as always without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, Sean Hickey. Classical music composer Sean Hickey grew up like so many musicians of his generation, forming a band with his friends and blasting Van Halen covers to anyone who would listen. But Hickey's musical calling ran both deeper and wider than the pop and rock music that was in vogue during his formative years. He studied jazz, guitar, and composition in college and began working for a music publishing house in his native Michigan until he decided that writing world-class music necessitated moving to a world-class city. Since taking up residence in New York City, his career as an in-demand composer has flourished, and Hickey now has a steady schedule of performances around the world. He has composed symphonies, concertos, pieces for string trios and quartets, music for a children's play, a film score, as well as receiving eight consecutive ASCAP awards. In the last two years alone, his works have been performed in New York, San Francisco, Detroit, Washington, Russia, Spain, Portugal, England, Ireland, Indonesia, and Brazil. In short, Sean Hickey is legit, and he continues to write new compositions as his name has become widely known in classical music circles. And if all this isn't enough, Hickey moonlights as a published author of travel and adventure pieces and a lecturer on career options for composers. Welcome to Independence Day, Sean Hickey. Hey, Sean. Hey, Joe. How's Great it going? To be here. Yeah, very good. Thanks. You're out from New York. Yes. Very nice. Welcome to California. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm sorry about the weather. Yeah, real pity. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. Check the weather. Uh, it's a funny thing this time of year. Like I don't want to taunt people, and it's so, we always start this show with the weather. I don't know why that is. Well, I, I mean, mean, it's the one corner of the country that has good weather right now. Yeah, yeah, Maybe. pretty much. Pretty much. We pay for it. I tell people all the time, I pay a lot of money for this weather. Yeah. So this weather better deliver. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so welcome to California, man. Thank um, you. You are. Uh, a classical composer mm-hmm. is what I would call you, um, which is a really unique thing. And I'm so happy and excited to have you on the show because the listeners are really going to get a, like a peek into what it's like a, to be a classical composer. Because I'm thinking a lot of people's minds and included, there's like the stereotype of the classical composer. Like you're imagining a guy with like an inkwell mm-hmm. and a candle hunched over a giant score in a freezing basement in 1780, you know? Yeah. And that's all true. Just which is, yeah. which is what it's what you do. Uh, you've recreated this in your basement, I'm assuming. Yes, of course. Um, but uh, but you're doing it in the modern age. Yeah. And so tell me. I mean, let's just, let's kind of get your baseball card first and foremost, because you've got lots of works that have been recorded, lots of works that have been performed around the world and mm-hmm. continue to be performed around the world. Um, but let's go back. Like, how did you how did you start in music? Well, I. Uh I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and when I was 10 years old, I fell in love with rock radio, you know, AOR radio with, you know, you listen to Zeppelin and the Beatles and Tom Petty and whatever, ACDC and all the stuff they were playing on the radio. And when I was 12, the summer of my 12th year, uh, my parents basically said, you're not going to sit around all summer and just, you know, listen to records and Play your Atari. Yeah, play your Atari. Yeah, I did have Atari, you're right. Um, That's not my bio, but good guess. Um, Yeah, so they basically said, you're going to do something, and I decided that uh, we would rent an electric guitar. Okay. I wanted to play play the guitar, and we found a a store that would uh, allow you to rent a guitar for a month, uh, whatever, and see how Uh you liked it. 
And I took lessons right away. Uh, and I still remember pretty vividly the day that I um, drove to the store with my parents on a Saturday, got the guitar, rented it. And as we were driving home, it's only maybe a 15-minute drive, I took the guitar out in the back seat and just tried to make some sort of sound. With in the, the car? Thing, in the car. Uh, by the time we pulled in the driveway, I knew I would be a musician. Wow. I would never be anything else. Wow. And uh, I don't know that a lot of people, a lot of kids, certainly at that age, know definitively what they're going to be and what they're going to do. Right. And of course, my music career, I mean, has changed a lot. I mean, at that point, I kind of thought I'd be a rock star, right. rock god, guitar god, or whatever. That's what I wanted to do. And I was obsessed with the guitar for many years, and I actually have a degree in it. Um, so were you one of those kids, like, you know, uh, were you one of those kids that, like, once you got the guitar, were you, like, shedding eight hours a day with it? Exactly. Pretty eight much. Hours. Eight hours from yeah. age 12. Uh, through college, up and through, and I had a pretty successful band uh, in my teenage years and early twenties. Was least, that still in the Detroit area? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, up up until I was probably twenty four or so, uh -huh. I play guitar eight hours a day. I wow. practice constantly. I rehearse with my band. I taught a full schedule of students from age sixteen to twenty four of about thirty per week. Wow. Um, I was very very much obsessed with it, uh, but kind of halfway through school, halfway through college. I kind of got a little disillusioned with the sort of competitive nature of being a really good and high-performing guitar player. Of course, when you you know you go to school, you go away, and you meet other people, you realize like, well, I think I'm good. I've been told throughout high school that I'm really good, and yeah, I'm still good and capable of of doing all these things. There's a lot of really good people. There's a lot of people that yeah. have a lot of different emphases right. than than I had. Uh, and in college, you know, you really had to learn like classical guitar, jazz guitar, whatever. Right. Well, like I had no chops and no understanding of even that music at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's really humbling experience. Yeah, at know. first you're just the best guy. Like first you're the best guy in your bedroom. Yeah. And then you're the best guy in your house if you get better than your dad or mom when all they're right. playing. And then right. you become the best kid in the block. Mm -hmm. And then you become the best kid in your school. And then you become the best kid in your high school. And then maybe you become the best kid in your town. But then, like you said, man, that whole illusion is shattered. That's what as happens. As soon as you get to a bigger town, you get to a bigger town. And now, but the funny thing is, man, I always remember, like, even the, the best players will tell you, there's always somebody better than you. Yeah, true. You know, no matter where you go, there's always someone who knows how to do it better, true, faster. True. I went to Berkeley College of Music yeah, for yeah. a little while. Which is where I wanted to go. They actually sold a pin. And I was there at the height of the hair metal, speed metal days. There, I actually saw a guy with the drill. And the guitar picks on it, doing the <laughs> thing. It's a whole shtick. Like, yeah. You can look it up on the internet. Uh, but there's, they sold in the Berkeley bookstore a pin that said, I'm the fastest guitar player at Berkeley. Really? Which at the time, I was, it, it, it actually, at the time, it was kind of a joke, but at the same time, I was like, I'm not sure I'm in the right place. Yeah, yeah. Because back then, you know, I, 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 there were certainly periods where I was playing five, six, seven hours a day. Really? But, but I was always playing Joe Walsh licks five, six, seven hours a day. Right. Like learning how to arrange guitar parts and learning about guitar tones and like taking it apart and resoldering things. And, Interesting. And, uh, I, you know, and I, I was serious about, it, serious about it, but I don't know. Like, and in, in when I was at Berkeley, it was warring factions, like in the cafeteria every day, warring factions of jazz heads and metal heads. Right. And I was neither. Right. Like I was just, I, I wanted to be a capable guitar player, but I wasn't a super jazz head and I wasn't a metal head. Anyway, but so you, and now this is in your bio, so I'm cheating a little bit, Yeah. but Van Halen is mentioned in there. Was yeah, that like yeah. the, the band or the guy that really got you into yeah, like, Jimmy, being a guitar player? Jimmy Page and Eddie Van Halen are, okay. like, you know, were, were like definitely the sort of guitar gods of my youth. I guess in many ways they still are. I mean, just, I still listen to Van Halen records. In fact, yeah. I had a period about six months ago, I was like listening yeah. again, and I'm just like, man, this is 
Absolutely brilliant music, the first five albums. Yeah. He um, came up recently on a show, and, yeah. and I'm repeating myself, but the thing that always impressed me the most about Van Halen were two things. There were major key tonalities hmm. in his riffs, whereas it seemed like hard rock music up to that point. Other than Jimmy Page, it seems like it was ominous. It was a lot of scowling. Yeah. It was a lot of like you know smoke on the water, stacked fifths and and yeah. you know power chords and Eddie in minor keys in minor keys yeah and Eddie really brought major key tonality into it and then what went along with that was he was grinning the whole time yeah dance the night away which was great yeah. you know and then of course you throw a little David Lee Roth yeah. world class showmanship on top yeah. of that and it's yeah. hard to beat it's a great combination we won tickets to see him last summer yeah uh, out here I work at a radio station and we got tickets at the last minute and trucked out there and they were great really. They were fantastic. I mean, David, you know, can David Lee Roth do that like howl, shrieky thing that he used to be able to do? No, but David Lee Roth's job is not to sing. Yeah. That's the thing that people forget. David Lee Roth's job is to entertain us. Right, right. Anyway, so did you, now were you also a kid, did you learn Van Halen? Or I mean, did you learn uh, Eruption? Like note for note? Uh, well, I tried. I, I can't say I, you know, now, now I have a son and he's obsessed with that song, mm -hmm. that piece or whatever yeah. the heck you call it. And he's like, why can't you play it anymore? Uh, well, I don't know that I ever could, but yeah, I yeah. could. I, there was probably a time for a couple of years that I felt I could play a pretty large part of the Van Halen catalog or yeah, just yeah. work my way through it. Yeah. Um, Eruption is one that I'd never, ever remotely came close to. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when people get to geeking out on Van Halen because I feel like Eruption is like the big like money shot for everybody. It's yeah, like yeah. the thing that's like the shot across the bow for all of rock music. Yeah. You know, the nirvana of that era. It absolutely changed everything. It changed everything. And, it, you know, it launched a thousand bands, probably yep. more. And probably sunk as many guitar players yeah. too who said, all right, I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. I listen to Hendrix, I listen to Clapton or whatever, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Know? And uh, just... Uh, Astounding, even to this very day, yeah. what he does is just is just amazing. Like he's a once he's a once in a several generations, yeah. once in a hundred year. I don't even know what he would be. Yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, I want to talk about like how you got from being like Mr. Rock and Roll kid playing. You know, did you have long hair? Were you like that guy too? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, crazy. Uh, mine's gotten really shaggy lately. I decided I would yeah. get it long one last time. Yeah, <laughs> well, I still had enough hair to do it one last time, uh, but. Uh, I want to hear about how you got from the kid teaching lessons and the kid, like the best kid in your town and then going away to college. Like, and where did it turn from that to like arranging for clarinets? Because, you know, that's not, for most people at least, you wouldn't think that would be a straight line. Right. You know, but first I want to hear some music because we can talk about music all day, but yeah. really the proof's in the pudding. And I want to hear what's this, what's the first piece we're going to play here? I'm sorry. Uh, it's, what's this one? This is the very first one. First piece we're going to, uh, a play is a title track of my last full release of my music. The piece is called Cursive. Okay. It's for solo piano. Uh, the performer on the recording you're going to hear here, his name is uh, Philip Edward Fisher. And Phil is an unbelievably talented pianist. Uh, the piece it was a commission uh, by another great pianist, Cheyenne Wang, who premiered it at Lincoln Center in 2009. And... Um, it's a single movement work of a real showy nature of uh, uh, of the what the piano can do. Okay. Uh, what the title really refers to is um, really kind of relates to my absolute intimidation in writing for the piano. Okay. And the piano is an instrument that composers are really supposed to know inside and out intimately. They should be able to play it. They should be able to perform on it. Uh, I can do none of those things. I can kind of get by a little bit. I certainly couldn't play anything this complex, but I really wanted to to do something, uh, to write a piece that really focused on line and sort of a linear nature of a line in the way that uh, 
the composers of antiquity, such as Bach and Mozart, would have been, you know, obsessed with the, the sort of long flowing line. Right, right, right. And cursive really refers to that as right. you know, the type of writing that you don't pick up your hand. Right. The very pen often. stays on the paper. The pen stays you... on the paper, and it, and it kind of did for me, and that really challenged me, you know, because prior to that, I was writing a lot more percussive Bartok type piano music where the hands are lifting and shifting all, all the time, and this was a very, very big departure for that. It's not all found in the title, nor is the piece all line either. Right. In fact, it's it's very varied and very diverse piece, uh, but it's a virtuoso piece, and it was really one that um, kind of allowed me to reestablish my relationship with the piano in a, in a new way. <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a romantic relationship. Yeah. Come back to me, baby. <laughs> I'm sorry I'd done you wrong, piano. <laughs> Come on back. All right, so my guest this week, Sean Hickey, so happy to bring him to you guys. Uh, visit him at seanhickey.com, and he's a Irish Sean, S-E-A-N, Hickey, H-I-C-K-E-Y.com. You can also find him on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash S-Hickey. Sean Hickey with the, pre, the, say the song, but the piece is cursive on Independence Day.
My name is Joe Armstrong. This week's guest on Independence Day, Mr. Sean Hickey. He is a Brooklyn-based composer. I was going to call you songwriter, but I guess it's kind of the same thing in a way. Same diff. Same thing. Composer is just a fancier way to say songwriter, I guess. More yeah. complex songs, more complex works, more complex arrangements. But beautiful, beautiful music. Such great stuff. Uh, and so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for clearing out some time. Thank you in for your having schedule me. To talk about this stuff. Uh, so, you know, we mentioned before, like, you grew up, Hacking at the guitar, yep. you know, doing the doing the Van Halen thing, like countless, countless teenagers, you know, of my generation, our generation. Um, how did you get? Like, when when did it become a compositional thing? Like, were you writing pieces on the electric guitar that started in the band, which then led to other things? I guess maybe another way to rephrase that would be: How did you get from arranging for the Brown Sound, mm-hmm. Van Halen's guitar tone, to arranging for an instrument that you may not play, mm. like clarinet or piano or something else? Well, uh, like a lot of kids who play guitars, you know, you fall in with other people and you form a band. And I was in a band, um, and that band uh, that I was that I joined when I was seventeen went on over the next four and a half years. We went on to have like kind of a little local bit of success. You know, we made a record. Uh, we toured all over the Midwest. We had a bus. We had a manager. We had a couple of roadies. We had pretty good cadre of fans it was really nice time what was the band called phineas gage phineas gage okay phineas gage yeah look that up uh it, it's rather hard to find this uh find the stuff nowadays but uh it was a great time but during that time i want to just back up a little bit uh when i was 15 uh my parents and i my parents took me to chicago for a long weekend and uh when we were there we saw the chicago symphony with george schulte you remember what they were playing? I know exactly what they were okay. playing. Yeah, Go on. the whole program. But the very first piece is the most memorable one for me. We actually had seats in Orchestra Hall, Symphony Hall, uh, up very close. The first piece was Stravinsky's Symphonies of Wind Instruments. Uh, it's not a symphony at all, but it's symphony in the, the ancient uh, use of the word, meaning sounding together. And that particular piece is absolutely archaic, strange, obscure. It's written in 1918, so just after the war. And... Uh, the piece is nearly devoid of musicians except for a small handful of, of brass and wind players. And I remember that sound for the first time hearing it and in a live, live setting with some of the greatest musicians in the world playing that piece. And that was that other sort of little musical epiphany moment in my life. At that point, I knew that I wanted to do that. I wanted to find a way to do that. How old were you then? I was 15. High school? Yeah. So you'd been playing guitar at that point for... Three years or so. Three or four, four years? years? Yeah. Okay. Um, but like a lot of guitar players, you know, the old joke is that how do you, you know, how do you get a guitar player to show up, uh, shut up, put some music in front of right. them? How do you get him to play quieter? Yeah. Drop some sheet music, Drop some in, sheet front music in front of them. And I couldn't read. So if I couldn't read, I wasn't going to write. Right. Um, and I really, you know, a, as a teenager, tried to learn that on my own as best I could. Uh, the guitar teachers that I studied with throughout that time uh, were great, but you know the the teachers of like rock guitar kid are really right. you know you they're wanna, just kind of like more advanced versions of you. Right? Do you want to learn? You shook me all night long today. Let's you know here's how it starts. You know I'm gonna write out the tabulature for you, and let's you know try to practice it next week or whatever. And that's kind of the, the the stuff that I was learning and some theory. And then I was picking up a lot of theory on my own and learning to read on my own a bit. But it wasn't until I went wasn't until I went to college, uh, and got thrown in with a bunch of musicians who. Uh, had been playing their respective instruments or singing from even a much younger age than when and I reading started. reading all the way through. reading all the way through, the flautists, the violinists, the singers, and all that stuff. And I didn't know anything. 
Um, and I really, in my, especially my first couple of years of school, really, really applied myself hard to do all of what they can do and more and, and did actually excelled in harmony and ear training and stuff. And it was at that point I just really started writing pieces for my friends, amateur ensembles, college groups and stuff like that. Uh, and as I was doing that, my band was kind of on its way out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty hard to maintain those relationships with four other guys, we all had kind of different uh, different views on all that stuff. We were at that point in our early 20s, and when you're in your early 20s, as I'm sure you, re- you remember, you're pretty idealist about everything. So there's... What know, do you mean? You're really... Re- yeah, you're really <laughs> firm in, in your... And we all yeah. were that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we and we were very serious, altogether too serious now looking back. Um, but... Um, but, you know, that kind of dissipated uh, a bit. And I got a lot more interested in writing for other people. And I found it ultimately challenging to try to c- convey ideas on paper and give it to someone else. Now, the hard part about, to me, still to this day, uh, in, you know, writing notated music is to have an understanding of not just the range, you know, the top note of the flute being a C or the bottom note or whatever on, on, on this or that, but understanding what every instrument can do in that range and really what is idiomatic and what is not idiomatic, what's not what's necessarily even suitable. Well, what's possible, but what's what's going to be good? And just because it can be done doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good. Um, but uh, really learning the personalities of as many instruments and people and all of what is available to us now a little less of that existed when i was coming out of school uh and now it's really intimidating i think to be a composer you have the world at your fingertips with technology and you know the computer and the internet and it's amazing and it's unbelievable unimaginable and it's too much and in many ways it's too much when i came out of school like i came out with a pretty sound education what's your degree in composition. Okay. And I also have a degree in jazz guitar, um, but in composition from Wayne State University in Detroit, where, mm-hmm. I, where I went. And uh, good teachers, good, solid training, wrote a lot of different works uh, during that time, felt pretty good about it. Um, and then you walk out of school, and then you're like, well, what the heck do I do next? Right. Uh, and at least a student nowadays has some understanding of what might be possible, just with a little bit of bandwidth and a website. And, you know, the sort of knowledge of really working with people and meeting people, which I didn't really have. My school didn't give me the sort of brass tacks of what it means to be a musician. Right. To be a musician entrepreneur. And that's what I'm In some ways, it's almost impossible to teach that, especially in the given the way that business has changed so much. It is. You know, at one point, you know, I always say when we talk uh, to people on the show is there was an old paradigm Hmm. and it kind of sucked and it was exploitative in a way. But at least we knew what it was. It was like the devil, you know. Right, right. It's like you have a band. You're trying to get the attention of a label, so you got to find the A and R guy, and you got to get him a. I was going to say a blowjob. Or yeah. You got to get him some drugs. You got to get him a girl, yeah. and then you got to you know get people to your shows, and then you get sign, which is a big thing. Sign capital S I G, and and then you know you get an advance, and then you make an album. Like it, it was a you know there was a path of some kind. Right. And then I think when the internet came along and destroyed the distribution channel or radically changed the distribution channel and then rendered labels in their traditional model uh, useless, essentially, or, or more useless, yeah. a bank with a really bad loan terms is really... Right, right. Uh, now there's as many paths as there are artists. That's right. And to do it from the classical realm, you know, 
there's the weight and the tradition of the way it's been done for hundreds of years because it was always kind of separate from the popular music right. world. So it, that's an interesting turn for you because now you're not just you're not just trying to do that old paradigm. You're doing classical at this point, trying to find gigs, trying to find a way to make a living. Yep. So take it from here. Sorry, go on. Well, I lived in Detroit, as I said, right. uh, and I graduated college in the early 90s, and Detroit at that time felt to me like a real cultural wasteland for what I wanted to do and, and what I tried to do. So what does what does one do if you have some interest in classical music and you're still in school? You get a job in these things that uh, you may have heard of, your listeners may know of. They're called record stores, mm -hmm. uh, and I work. Some there. exist. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, exist. You, you have Amoeba, and you have, and you have a lot more vinyl places. The funny places thing now. is, I'm sorry, this is a very short aside, yeah. and I'm sorry for interrupting, but the the one good thing is that the ones that exist are only the cool ones. Yes, like the crappy ones from the mall are gone. They were always crappy anyway. Go yeah. on. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I worked in one of those. Uh, not so crappy. Pretty good. Um, and uh, it was actually a classical store, a classical specialist store, and they used to have a few of those things in, wow. in, in the U.S. And we had one in two in suburban Detroit. And um, and I worked there, and in a short time, I became a manager, and uh, and then I moved into uh, some other things. But I, I, you know, the my real reason for working there was the the hopes that Naomi Arvey, the music director of the Detroit Symphony, would walk in one day, and I'd be able to go up to him and, you know, hey, can I help you find something or whatever, and you know, show him some music or whatever. That never really happened, <laughs> but um, but the intent was there. Um, and I will say that, you know, my first several years out of school, finding and securing performances was next to impossible. Yeah. I lived, a, uh, I lived in a really cool um, uh, suburb of Detroit called Royal Oak, uh, which is then, uh, as now, you know, kind of a, a really cool cultural walking type place, which is kind of rare in Michigan. And... Um, you know, I mounted my own concerts in the Royal Oak Public Library. Cool. I had one, you know, it was a bunch of little old blue-haired ladies. And um, we also had, um, I had a somewhat famous uh, celeb local celebrities to show up at the concerts. And you always show up a little after they started and leave a little bit before they ended. And that was Dr. Jack Kevorkian. How very California him. of him. Yeah. That's like a very, very, like, it's like a Lakers game. <laughs> right, right. Everybody shows up halfway through the first quarter and everybody leaves at the end of the third. Yeah. Go he, on. He was my uh, my Spike Lee, I guess. Interesting. Or, yeah. So. Did you meet him? I met him. Yeah, I did. And he would always kind of, as he was walking out, I'd be sitting watching somebody play a piano piece of mine or whatever. And he, you know, he kind of give a thumbs up on the way out. Interesting. You know, say, yeah. It's a funny thing, uh, this moment in your life or any musician's life, because when they're in college, I mean, it's such a nurturing environment because you're put in there with the clarinetists and the top-notch pian pianists and the great singers, and they're all there, and they've all, I mean, you seemed like you were so busy in college, but you're really, you're not. Even with all the music classes that I had, like, I, I used to play Frisbee, yeah, you know, and, and but I would be able to play other people's music, and you were exposed, other people, the music was all around all the time. Right. And then you get out of that, and and then it wasn't there anymore. Yeah, it was a really, really hard thing to go through. You know, like if you needed, you know, when I was uh, writing and recording, if I needed a kid who played harp, you know, I'm this piece. Oh, I've got a, it's you know, I have a rock band. It's like, hey, I think this this is a more of acoustic piece. I think it needs something else, and it yeah. needs violin, or it needs an oboe, or whatever. Yeah. They were around. You could call them up, and they were like five minute walk away, and they'd show up with their instrument, and you'd record them, and off they'd go. Yeah. But then once you're done with school. 
that whole thing changes. Those opportunities aren't there for you. And it was, it was a tough, tough time for me. Definitely. Indeed. And uh, let's find another piece. But, I, but first, I want to say that when I, I also worked in record stores at that era, and I think, honestly, mostly what I was paid to do was to keep high, local high school kids from stealing copies of <laughs> yeah, Nevada's yeah. Nevermind. That's yeah. the only thing I was paid to do. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, what's, so what's next, man? What's, what's this next piece we're going to hear? Uh, we're going to hear uh, one of the three movements of my clarinet concerto. We'll hear the third and final movement. Uh, the clarinet concerto is, uh, you know, so the concerto is... Uh, for maybe the benefit of your listeners, or maybe Please, not. Pretend like they don't know anything, because okay. some of them probably don't. Okay. Uh, a concerto <laughs> is, a, is a, what, what we would call a concertante work, which is uh, sort of pits or highlights a particular instrument or soloist against the backdrop or the canvas of an orchestra. Mm-hmm. In this case, the solo instrument is a clarinet. In this case, the orchestra happens to be a string orchestra, so no winds or, or brass or percussion. Um, the clarinet concerto was commissioned by David Gould in the Metro Chamber Orchestra and premiered at Symphony Space in New York in 2004, uh, 2005, excuse me. It's gone on to have a, a fair amount of performances with the folks you'll hear here. This is Alex Fitterstein on clarinet, uh, the conductor Vladimir Lande and the uh, St. Petersburg Philharmonic. Uh, we recorded it in Russia. The third movement of the piece... Wait, 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 wait. Yes. What was that loud? You just kind of tossed that off. Well, we just we recorded that in Russia. Ah, yeah. Russia's a good place to make <laughs> uh, make make orchestral recordings. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's very widely known. Like pop bands or can kind of do that because you can go to you know Eastern Europe and right. there's an orchestra you can hire for and a song. That's right. So to speak, and that's how it can be done. You know, right. because you know because the cost there and just the general level of musicianship. So in St. Petersburg, which is about the most culturally literate place I know, at least musically so, it's unbelievable. There are tons of orchestras and there are tons of fans and who shows up to concerts? So that's the, the European premiere of my clarinet concerto was in the Grand Hall of the St. Petersburg Philharmonic, so that's kind of the Carnegie Hall of, yeah. of Russia, uh, packed with people, all of whom were younger than me. Wow. Uh, mostly 20-something women and, and whoa. some families. Whoa, 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 whoa. You yeah. just tossed that off, yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to go pack my stuff. I'm, I'm moving to St. Petersburg. I'm used to the climate, at least. Yeah. All right. So go on. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting with my stupid jokes. The uh, that's a good joke. That's uh, that's okay. Uh, the clarinet concerto incorporates uh, a, a tune, and one of my loves, great loves in life, is Irish traditional music. And um, there's a tune that's used in uh, in here uh, that sounds traditional. It's actually not all that old. It's called Hunter's House. And the second half of the piece really kind of weaves this tune in and out of the sort of uh, the clarinet and the or- orchestra fabric, and it really kind of is the kind of is the sort of anchor of the whole movement. And when you say tune, you're talking about a tune. A tune. That's yeah. which is how they. That's the. It's an Irish thing. Right. Right. You're not just talking about a melody. It's a tune. It's a tune. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So so happy to have classical composer, all around great guy, Sean Hickey is my guest on Independence Day. This is the third movement of his clarinet concerto on Independence Day.
the third movement of Sean Hickey's clarinet concerto. I thought I'd pretend I was a classical disc jockey in a classical yeah. station for just a second there. They're very serious. Too serious. That's, that's, that's the problem with it. And that's one thing, like, uh, we've gotten one of our, uh, our recent artists was the LA, uh, LA Choral Lab. Right. Um, and it's so much fun to see people doing classical music, like, in the modern era. Like, you've got Eric Whitaker as someone we talked about a lot mm -hmm. in, uh, in that episode because it was all mostly, mostly acapella choral music. Mm -hmm. And... To you know, you're in some ways you are a rock star. You're having your pieces performed in Russia for twenty something women, a whole you know once, uh, once exactly one, one time. Okay, <laughs> come on, man, work with me here. But you're you know you're 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 successful at doing this. You're you're being commissioned to write works. You are having your works performed internationally. I mean, think I mean, I, lots of composers died in poverty. Because they're obsessed with what they do, and they're brilliant, and we all know their names. Yep. You know, everybody does. Even the people who aren't musicians know who these people are. Mm -hmm. They're the pillars of the of the style when we talk about classical music. Mm -hmm. um, and people think of classical music as something that happened only in antiquity, or something that you go do. And even when you go to see a, a performance, it's artists or composers who per, who compose that in antiquity somewhere mm -hmm. back in the annals of time. But it's still being it's a, it's it's happening today. And to see people who are young and hip, and not covered in ink and, you know, not hunched over and not dying from syphilis or God only knows what else, uh, doing it in the modern age is a really great thing. 
you know, so so kudos, man. Thank you. It's Thank a really, really much. cool thing. Thanks. Um, so we were, we've kind of meandered to the point in your life where, you know, you're you're out of college, and you're working at a record store, right? And you're you're waiting for someone. Like, but what was there a realization moment where you said, I, "I need a bigger pond," or like, how did you get away from Detroit? I guess is what I'm saying. Because like, mo- so many musicians and artists and actors and creative types somehow I'll end up figure out. Unless you're John Mellencamp, and somehow you'd figure it out and stay in Indiana. Mm-hmm. You got to go somewhere else, right? And right. what, what was that moment for you? Was there like a watershed moment? Was there like a ding? Not quite in the level of the other uh, watershed moments that I mentioned earlier. Right. Um, but I knew... and I Well, knew that's from less a, of a creative thing and more of like yeah, a practical consideration. Right, right. I knew that I think from a pretty young age that I wanted to, you know, leave the Detroit area. Uh, and I really wanted to live in New York. And I, and I always have. Uh, but a, a, there was an aside there at the record store, and it's a pretty big one. And it's one that I'm still in now in that... Um, during that time, that was kind of the sort of apex of the climb of the CD era, when everyone was replacing their Beatles albums on compact disc, and they were hearing stuff on NPR, and they went out and they bought Chant, or they bought the Anonymous Four to, you know, as a, you know, acapella vocal group. And uh, I was there in the midst of that, the climb of, of all of that. And um, there were uh, six major labels and uh, several independent distributors that would come into the store and their sales reps would come in and talk to our buyer and, you know, sell them their new releases and all that stuff. I decided to put the, a resume together and uh, send it to all of those. And one of those distributors called me. We arranged a very hasty interview in a, the Detroit airport in whatever oh, wow. year that was, 1993, I believe. Uh, and I got hired. Since that day, I've been in, in the record business. And one of the few people, I think, and I may be wrong about this, but one of the few people that has stayed in more or less the, the world of classical music, classical and jazz, and um, that eventually took me to, to New York City, uh, where I live today in Brooklyn, uh, and that was in 1998 that I moved, and, you know, talk about a big pond. You yeah. Know, you, you talk about, uh, you know, the musicians and how it might be, you know, uh, somewhat atypical on your show to, to have a composer, but in my world... You know, you can't swing a cat in my neighborhood without, you know, striking a composer somewhere yeah. uh, because they're everywhere and, 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 and they are prevalent. And there are so many people that are doing really cool and interesting and innovative things. And a lot of them are, are you know, finding the tools that are available for us now to really promote their art and their work that was not so easy 10 years prior to that, 15 years prior to that. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I, I really feed off that the energy or the competition or the, 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 you know, the need to try to, you know, make something for oneself. And even though I've been, you know, I am far more busy in my other life and, you know, as an administrative world. In, in the, the label business, you mean, working yeah, in the record business. Yeah, right. working in the record business. Um, I find, you know, creatively, I'm much more able to, you know, focus when I need to focus on my work and to do so in very short periods of time and try to produce work. And I th- like to think that the work I, I'm doing now is, is a lot better than the work I was doing in my early 20s when I could set aside six hours on a Sunday afternoon at my piano and a cup of tea and try to write a string quartet or whatever. Like, I don't have that possibility now with the, the, you know, with the way life is and in, in my age. But um, I find it very, very stimulating, stimulating to live in, in a place like New York. New York is, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, anyone who's never had the chance to live there. I mean, I, it's one of those things, like, I feel like everyone should, in life, everyone should have to be a waiter <laughs> for at least a little while, so you learn not, to, and learn not to be a jerk to people. Right. 
Uh, I think everyone should have to travel out of the country. Hmm. You know, three months, go, go. You're not allowed to come back for three months. I don't right. care where you go. Right. <laughs> I don't care if you camp out in Tijuana for three months. You're still going to learn something. Right. Uh, better, better overseas. Uh, and then I think everyone it would be great if they could live in New York for just a little while. But there's already too many people there, so maybe yeah. the last one's yeah. not the best idea in the world. But what a great, incredible experience. It's like no other place I've ever been. I've been to London. I've been to Tokyo. I've been Sydney. I've been all these places. And New York just hums. Hmm. It's got this, I call it a resonant frequency hmm. of like human endeavor. Yep. You know, like all those people doing whatever it is they're doing in that place, it just vibrates. The whole place is vibrating all the time. Yeah. And what I learned, this is a very, very uh, important lesson. If you fight that energy in any way, it will, dis- it can, or it can destroy you. Yeah. And you'll run out back to, Lincoln, Nebraska, Uh with your tail between your legs and your feathers bloodied. But, and this is the most courageous thing in the world, and I'm really glad I learned this. If you can have the courage to open your heart to that energy, because it's really frightening at first. It's a really big river. But if you can let it in, it will lift you up and carry you along. But you have to have the courage to do that. And it's a really, really hard thing to learn. And I had to learn it. Yeah. Um, An incredible place to be. Yeah. Um, so, but so when you say so, when you went to New York, your realization was as much a practical consideration for your your day job, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got transferred basically yeah. with, with my company. Yeah, <laughs> what a great place! <laughs> At least you didn't get transferred to like I don't know, like in Nebraska, in Nebraska, or I you know no no offense to people from Nebraska. Great, yeah. I, I love some of you, uh, but if you're in the in this classical world, you know you could be transferred to I don't know what's a town with a really crappy you know, symphony arrangement. Uh, Bismarck? Yeah. You know? I'm or, not at liberty to say. Yeah, I don't know. I, I hope I never find out. You know, I live in, I've lived in New York and LA and Chicago, so what yeah, do I know? Great you know, places. Fancy man. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so now you're in New York, and at this point, you know, a big thing for classical musicians is, is having, your, having works commissioned, mm. which means someone's going to pay you mm. to write music which that's a big thing for any musician, right. being paid, whether you're being commissioned or just being paid on the backside, one way or another, getting paid to do it. Yep. Like, how did you get to the point where, you know, from the concerts where Kevorkian's giving you the thumbs up and you're setting up your own concerts somewhere in Detroit, in suburban Detroit, to having someone call you and say, Sean, I want you to write a piece. Here's $10 million or whatever it is. Well, uh, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of nurturing relationships ultimately. Um, I made a decision uh, roughly 10 or 12, 10, 10, 11 years ago that, you know, it wasn't, unless I really, really, really wanted to do something, you know, make some essay in some form, write the Great American Symphony or something like that, uh, I was really going to write works where, that, you know, for people and with people in mind when they asked me and that we could negotiate and work on a commission of some kind. And, uh, you know, I, it, in many ways, I mean, this is a fallacy about commissions too, is that, you know, um, a composer who thinks that the fee is the most important thing or the only thing in a commission uh, is, is, I think, really looking to be narrow-minded and, uh, or, or, or is narrow-minded rather. Uh, in the world of contemporary music, and even when old music was contemporary, right. uh, great institutions like the New York Philharmonic or whatever might commission a composer to write the Great American Symphony and that great American symphony had exactly one performance. Well, you know how long it takes to write a symphony? I don't care who you are. It takes some time. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lot of work. 
and you know, and you've got to extract parts. And if you don't have a publisher, you're doing this on your own, and you've got to you know attend rehearsals and you do a lot. Maybe there's some educational outreach. Maybe there's more that's required of you as a composer uh, to be a whole part of that. To have one performance on a Friday night or Friday and Saturday night, at, you know, at Avery Fisher Hall, and then to have that piece set on the shelf for a lifetime, well, that is, you know, exactly what has happened hundreds or thousands of times over with composers. Uh, so, you know, I think a really, really important thing when negotiating a commission beyond the fee, uh, you know, is to really uh, nail down the possibility or the probability or the guarantee of multiple performances over a period of time and giving that uh, particular performer or ensemble or orchestra or whatever uh, right of first refusal should you get another performance with another person or people in some other part of the world. Um, but really work toward multiple performances. And that's the kind of thing that you know we composers uh, kind of struggle with because when we... Uh, are asked to write a work and are commissioned to write a work. There's one. There are two words that uh, a, a performing arts presenters love to be able to print on a program if, if they are, actually supporting new music, and that's world premiere. Right. Um, I knew that one of them had to be premiere. I was yes. hoping the other one would be like free tacos or yeah, well that'd be good too. Free beer or yeah, the beer and wine thing goes pretty far. But uh, yeah, yeah, world premiere is something that 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 that. Said. And I remember having this conversation with a great. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning composer several years ago, Ned Roram, uh, who wrote three great symphonies in his in the 1950s. And then I'm sure I had this conversation with him around 2005 or so. Um, you know, and he had been asked several times since that time, you know, was commissioned to write a new symphony and would have been commissioned and probably, you know, his publisher negotiated a fee or whatever. And he said personally, no. I have three other ones back there in the 1950s. They're all good. They're all worthy. They all had exactly one performance. Wow. Um, and uh, that was kind of stuck with me a little bit. So, yeah. that, and, you know, and my, my thing is that, you know, a lot of works, I mean, the, I, music doesn't come easy to me, really. It never has. It's a lot of work. Uh, I'm not a natural musician in any way. I think I have a very good ear. Um, but um, the, the craft of it, particularly since I didn't grow up reading it and, and writing um, it takes me a while to do something like this. So I really want to know that it's going to have a life beyond a premiere. It's going to have subsequent performances. It's going to have recordings. Some of what you're li listening to today on your show is, an, is a good example of, of, of things that I negotiated that with right. that particular performer that he or she recorded, you know, in, in addition to what we're, what we're talking about here. So. It's a, well, it's a very smart and savvy way to go about that. Because, you know, even within in popular music, you know, you hear countless stories of people, bands being paid a pile of money to record an album. And then for some reason, the label's not happy with it. The most classic example in our modern age is Wilco's uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot mm -hmm. album, which was recorded by Warner Brothers. Yep. It was paid for the recording. They didn't like it. So they shelved it somehow or another by the fates just lined up. They wound up getting the masters and said, just go. Yeah. Just go. So then they were, you know, this was that was a thing because it was happening right around the time when everything was changing. Like the bottom had fallen out of the industry right. and early two thousands, early two thousands, and you know, labels weren't kicking out money like they were. So how they managed to get out of that with that, those masters is is amazing. Right. And then wound up getting re-signed by Nonesuch was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Right. So it's like that's the big joke is that they paid for it twice. Yeah. But then you know, and but then they made themselves darlings of their fans and a lot of people in the industry who were watching what was happening and all the big changes that were happening. And forces were aligning 
anything against the record labels, and I'm not saying they're all bad. Yep. They provided an essential service, but it wound up being an exploitative thing to the extent that you know it, things were changing. Then you get to then it evolves to Radiohead just a handful of years later, giving away their album for whatever you want to pay in rainbows. Yep. In rainbows, and now you know where are we now? I don't know. Different distribution <laughs> models, different distribution, different models, distribution for, models for everyone, you know, and yeah. there's no one size fits all. And I find it very interesting. I, I talk yeah. about this a fair amount. I was actually lectured at UCLA a couple of days ago uh, in the music department there. And I talk about the fact that, you know, in my talks on musician entrepreneurship, which I'm very passionate about, uh, especially with as regards composers and performing musicians in the classical world, is the fact that there aren't the gatekeepers that this business had right. for the first hundred years. Most of them are gone. And with a bit of bandwidth and a bit of opportunity and a bit of wherewithal on behalf of uh, of the individual artist, that artist can go a long way. That artist can get the quote unquote record deal, yeah. or um, you know the opportunity to perform on one of the world's great stages, or the opportunity to meet a super notable composer who could become your teacher, right? Uh, by being at a cocktail party, an ASCAP awards benefit or whatever, you know, the, the, these kinds of things right. happen and they happen in real time and we just need to know what they are in order to find it. And them. it's easy to go negative with these changes because it's like a, it's like this crazy wild west period where nobody right. knows what's going on and there's no firmament upon which to stand to build right. your pyramid or to build your house of cards or whatever you're going to build, whatever you're going to build. Um, but, and the, the internet new technology has, uh, blown a hole in the bottom of the old boat, but it's enabled a whole other realm that nobody thought could possibly exist. And it's constantly changing and people are still finding new ways to do this. Like people talk about, you know, the internet's been around for a pretty long while now, but my analogy is that we're still really, we might be to the second pitch now Hmm. of the first inning of the internet, of the game of the internet. Yeah. What's possible. Yeah. You know, it, we're just getting started. It hasn't Who knows been that what's long. next? I Who knows don't. what's next? Yeah. Uh, let's, I, I want to find out, this is, because this is something I think about, and I want you to think about it. I want to play a song or a piece, your mm-hmm. next piece. But while this piece is playing, I want you to think about that feeling you had the first time you heard like a full orchestra play your music. Because mm-hmm. I imagine that in my head. Like I've done it kind of half-acidly in a recording one time. Mm-hmm. I, my guitar player and I wanted a big string orchestra for a particular song on my last record. And, so we went online, find out the ranges of a cello and a viola and a violin. Mm-hmm. And then we used kind of a we kind of reverse engineer. We wrote them out, wrote out the parts using software, and then brought in players and had it played. And it's in and then we brought up those faders when we recorded all those parts on that song and we just took out the band. It's like I just wanted to hear that. Right. So somewhere in the back of my mind I think, man, that's amazing. Yeah. I gotta do that. Yeah. So just hearing that, which wasn't even real. I mean, it was real, real, real musicians, real instruments, but they weren't all playing together all at the same time. It had been overdubbed and right. overdubbed. But like, that's got to be the most incredible feeling. So think on that and tell me what, what, what song we're playing next, and then we'll hear about that. I want to hear your thoughts on that after we get back. Sure. Well, the, the piece that we're going to hear next is called The Birds of Barclay Street, and uh, Barclay Street as in Barclays Bank. Uh, though that's not the reason why the street is named that. Uh, it's not an orchestral piece. It's a solo piano piece. Uh, and I have very, very little recollection of writing this very short contemplative piano piece, but it is my most performed work Wow! Uh, by a long shot, by a long shot. It's probably performed somewhere in the world about once a month. And, uh, and uh, I remember where I was, and I kind of remember how it came together. And the day I wrote it was September 12th, 2001. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, I, I witnessed what happened uh, the day before at pretty close range. 
And uh, of course, like like many of us, like all of us, I think, we'll never forget where we were on that day, never forget what we saw as much as we'd like to. Um, and uh, the, the story behind the particular title was something that I had seen on the news that night of two ubiquitous New York City pigeons um, sitting on, on top of a street sign, which is called Barclay Street, which is exactly two blocks north of, of, of the World Trade Centers. And uh, as, as one of the towers fell, the doves flew into the air, the pigeons flew into the air. Hence the title, The Birds of Barclay Street. I have no recollection of how I wrote the piece. I, I, I remember sitting at the piano with a blank piece of paper, numb, creatively just dead like all of us, and sitting down and trying to make sense or do something about this. And an hour later, I had a finished piece, and I did not make an erasure. I did not change a note. I did not do anything. It's completely atypical of my work, but as I said, most performed work I have. In the well, the transcendent nature of art. You know, exactly that's how it works. You know, you do what you do. And sometimes the moments when you're thinking the least is when you get the most unique or most beautiful thing that you'll ever do. My guest is Sean Hickey. This is his piece, The Birds of Barclay Street on Independence Day. Thank you. 
My name is Joe Armstrong. This is Independence Day. Thank you ever so much for listening. My guest this week, Mr. Sean Hickey, is a classical composer and a world-class musician, I would say. Uh, visit him at seanhickey.com, S-E-A-N-H-I-C-K-E-Y. Also, soundcloud.com slash shickey. And you're also on Twitter. I can't pronounce this to save my life, man. This is a very cool uh, Twitter handle. It pronounces Rev Weltas. Rev Weltas. R E V U L E L T A S. R E V U E L T A S. Did I say it wrong? Yeah. No, you said it wrong. I okay. think you spelled it wrong. Oh. I mean, you said it right. I think you spelled it wrong. Rev Weltas. Well, I haven't said it right yet. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I helped you out. <laughs> Good work, man. Everybody needs a helping hand. Uh, now, what is that a reference to? There's, I mean, with a handle like that, there's got to be something uh, well, to that. Rev Weltas r- roughly means um, scrambled. In Spanish, so huevos revueltas, scrambled eggs. Uh, Revueltas was also a uh, Mexican composer of the early 20th century. Died in 1940, uh, and was a particular obsession of mine, and and still is in many ways. A very unique individual um, who died rather young, and um, why I chose that as my Twitter handle. Or handle uh, I did it a while ago, and I'm not really sure, but there you have it. Yeah, well, there's a four five one in a lot of my email addresses because I needed a number. Back in the day, it was actually AOL. Remember yeah. when AOL, you had to, if you had an AOL account, which is what everybody had initially. That's all there was. That's all there was. And you get, you got five emails, yeah. or, which meant you had five logins with each account. And my ex-girlfriend and I, like, we each had to pick one. And I, you know, even my name, Joe Armstrong, is fairly common. So every permutation of that, even by that point, was long gone. Right. And I had to get a number. And I was always a Ray Bradbury fan. Fair enough. So I just needed a number. Yeah. So I was like, well, what's a number that's significant to me? You know, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm a big Ray Bradbury fan. Plus, the internet seems to be some kind of like, even then, it was like a prescient thing about the death of books. And I was like, okay, 451, that'll work. And it has just carried forward. It's been in so many of my email addresses, even to this very day. What about your ATM? Your, my who? Your, your ATM card. Oh, there's no your, money in there. Oh, okay. Right. It's useless. You can't, blood from a stone, man. Come on. Sorry, folks. It's all right. Well, you know, we make, what were we saying before, uh, uh, you know, even non-classical composers these days sell dozens of albums, yeah, if, right. you're, if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Sean Hickey, so glad to have you, man. Thank such you. beautiful music, such a, a unique thing to have you on the show. And thank you again for taking time out to do this. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about. Okay, so it's first we we, we kind of set this up before the show, before the uh, the song, before the piece. Um, was there a, like a feeling? I can't imagine there wouldn't be the first time you sat back and heard a full orchestra play something you created, like because you do it in like alone. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all these people are doing it. Yeah. It, it's a. Uh unbelievably beautiful and humbling and impressive feeling when it works. The problem among uh, all of us uh, uh, composers, particularly in the early stages and when you're really struggling to write orchestral music, if you are, if that's your métier to to do so, um, is to try to get a good performance, and at least an initial one is especially hard. Uh, So my first recollection of having an orchestra play a piece of music of mine was the sound of to charging freight trains running at each other as fast as they can and colliding. And I was in college and I was conducting my own work or trying to, and I was like the sort of signal master in the midst of all this chaos. It sounded horrible, like enough to make me want to give it up altogether. Uh, and it doesn't look cool to throw a baton. No. Like, you know, you can throw a drum, <laughs> like a drum, like a cymbal stand or like kick your, kick your amp over, or yeah. set your guitar on fire. Like that's kind of a stage thing. Like you can't really throw a baton. It doesn't have the same weight. I remember having a sneezing fit while conducting yeah. college. Yeah. Like, on, like on, on the podium. And that, that was, I think, the end of my conducting career, if there was ever to be one. But years later, you know, and as I've worked with, you know, much, much higher caliber musicians who know what the hell they're doing, 
uh, great conductors and great orchestras in, in, in different parts of the world. Um, the experience of, you know, hearing, especially in the performance as opposed to a rehearsal, a really, really great performance in a great place with great committed musicians. Uh, it's just such a humbling experience. Uh, here in California, I was uh, resident in 2009, I believe, at the Cabrillo Festival for Contemporary Music up in Santa Cruz. And um, Marin Alsop, who is one of my idols in many ways, she is, a, you know, just a one of the most talented musicians that I know, an unbelievably gifted conductor, uh, music director of the Baltimore Symphony, among many, many other things. Uh, she asked if I would be part of that particular season and have, if I had a short orchestral work that I might like to include on the program. Well, the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra is made up of principal players from some of the great orchestras who in the summertime aren't really working. Uh, so um, they're all there in Santa Cruz over two weeks. And I was shared a program with John Adams and the uh, Northern California premiere of his piece, City Noir. And uh, that was an incredible experience because when Marin lifts up a baton and gives a downbeat, yeah, magic happens. Yeah, and that that was an instance where it really worked. Good man. Yeah, that's really really great. I mean, I I, I love hearing people's to not sound you know passe or, or, or dopey. Like I loved it when like people's like dreams come true. Like even in and even if they look different than you thought they were going to look, which it seems how that always is how it goes. Yeah. When you when you grow up and become an actual adult, like right. you, you know the dreams you had, you know they may come true in a different way. Yeah. Or a slightly different way, and then you just have to be like smart enough to realize that it's happening. Yeah. You know and appreciate that. That was a, so, good, that was a good one. So good for you, man. Thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. I want to talk about like your writing process, mm. right? Because it was easy for me, like when my friend and I went to score that thing for the, um, for the string group, it wound up being about 18 pieces, all, all told, when we did it. And, uh, you know, like I said, the internet facilitated that because we could look up. It took us 25 seconds to figure out, okay, where does a viola like to play? Mm -hmm. Where does a, a cello like to play? You know, what's the range of these in given instruments? Like I can imagine in my head, I've heard him play a trillion times. Yeah. But... When it comes to practically nuts and bolts of X, and now I'm writing for them, you know, so that kind of facilitates it. But, uh, you know, you're a guitarist, start off as a guitarist, yeah. uh, and you like, um, you're a musician, so you must tinker with other instruments. But then, you know, where does it come from when you're sitting with a, and, and first of all, it's, it's, it's a uh, ticky tacky nitty gritty thing, but are you writing with software? Uh, I am, but not exclusively. And the software that I use is a notation program. Okay. So Finale. Finale in my is case, the one. Usually, in my case, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's there for notation as a guide. So it's not like I'm test driving my ideas on there. I mean, you can to a limited uh, way. And, in fact, I've been using Finale now for over 20 years. It was a pretty sure it was a graduation gift from college. And I've yeah. just been updating over the years. Uh, and it works for me. I've found limitations there, but it definitely works for me. Uh, my process usually does start with the blank page or a blank page. Pen and paper. Pen and paper. Wow. Uh, and really kind of uh, trying to define, like at least sort of architecturally, what I want a piece or a segment of piece of a piece to be. You know, roughly how long, certainly, the, you know, defining the instrumentation, uh, who's it for, um, you know, what's it, what's it going to be, what's the sort of general shape of, of what I want there. And at that point, a whole lot of nothing happens. Um, but at least I, I kind of have a start. And then usually the way a piece really kind of starts for me is uh, is just some sort of gesture, just a small shape, 
just it might be a half a bar or something that I think might start a particular piece of music, and that usually has something that that is is sort of a germ of something that I would actually write down, and maybe I would put that half of measure into finale, make sure it you know looks and sounds okay and playable or what have you, uh, and then from there I'm I'm generally working, and as the process goes goes through in a particular piece, I work fairly linearly. It's not like I write the you know the out outro and, and mm-hmm. you know work on the verse one or whatever uh, earlier. Uh, I, I work fairly linearly, but I'm really kind of looking at the overall picture and kind of stepping back and trying to get that 30,000-foot view of a particular work. And when you're talking instrumental concert music, you're often talking big forms, right, stuff right, of, right. of particular length, you know. Motifs that, that weave in and out, things motifs, that come yeah. back, being rephrased in a different key, in right. a different time signature, in a different... Uh, uh, major versus minor, or right. yeah. and the musical argument really dictates in in my case and maybe the case of many composers, you know, the sort of rough length of something. The point is that you know to do it all in a minute, like you know Ramon song would do and can do well and very well, uh, wouldn't necessarily work for a you know instrumental piece for right eighty piece orchestra or whatever. So. Um, you know, my process is really, uh, you know, as I get into a piece and the ideas at some point start coming at me so fast, uh, at that point, it's really about what can be discarded, what can be ignored, what can be set aside for some other work at some point right. in, the, in the future, uh, and really trying to, like, rein in, I wouldn't call it inspiration because I, I don't really think along those lines. I don't wait for it. Uh, I think my best work comes from work comes from sitting down and, 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 and doing it. I kind of believe in that sort of Stravinsky method of not waiting around for inspiration, but just, you know, it, it, it coming when the work is hardest. It's a Bradbury thing, too. Oh, yeah. Bradbury, uh, when he was alive, you know, all through his adult life, when he was an uh, active author, he would wake up every single morning and write for an hour, whatever. Yeah. If That's that cool. meant him typing a, a cue yeah. for an hour, yeah. which I'm sure he didn't, but... That's what he would do, whether he felt like it or not. First thing he did every morning was just write stuff down. It's a great discipline. And eventually, something takes shape. Yeah. And then you run with it. I mean, that's the beautiful thing. Ever. It's just a weird thing to talk about in a classical situation. But you ever, you know, Tenacious D. Sure. Like I love. I I I was home, not feeling well the other day, and I was flipping through, you know, the millions and millions of videos I had on there. And the Pick of Destiny was on, which is actually kind of a terrible movie. I'm sorry, Jack and Kyle. It was a kind of crappy movie, but. But they, it's the same thing they did in the, the, the show, the HBO show, or whatever network it was on back in the day. Like, they called it Inspirado. <laughs> and they would like, draw a pentagram on the floor and like, put Cheetos in the middle or something. Like, okay, we're going to stand in here and play a lick. And there Inspirado comes. So like, I, I tend to think of it in terms when I, when I, what you're talking about. Like I said, it's a very strange reference for a classical music thing. But I, mm-hmm. Inspirado is different from Inspiration. Like, inspirato is something that I have grafted or taken from them, and, like, it's something you force to happen. Right. Like, you kind of, you set up an environment where it's going to happen, which may just be sitting down with your score yep. and your pen and doing it. Yeah. You know? Because there's, there's wisdom in that Nike thing, too, man. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. You know? The mountain is there. I'm down here. If I want to be up there, there's only one way to get up there. Yeah, I was I was really kind of confronted with that. Go up the this, mountain. This this past year with a a, a piece as a c- commission and a very very big one for me. Uh, but I found it to be some of the hardest, kind of the hardest period. Really, kind of getting in and understanding how it was going to work as a, a commission. Unbelievably uh, grateful for uh, Mikola Petri, 
who happens to be the sort of Eddie Van Halen of the recorder, you know, the recorder, mm-hmm. uh, who's commissioned... The little she, instrument that everyone's handed out in, like, third grade. Exactly. A little, like, exactly. little flute-looking thing. Yeah, but she can do eruption on the recorder. I mean, she can do anything on it, and has, and has commissioned some 200 works out of the instrument. Well, she commissioned a concerto from me uh, that will have its premiere in Denmark and Copenhagen uh, in um, September, and then it'll be recorded as well. Uh, my piece is, is a three-movement work, I basically had a complete blank canvas, do whatever I want, any size orchestra, any instrumentation, the largest percussion battery in Europe to choose from, uh, which is based there in Copenhagen. And uh, I got really, really intimidated. I bet you did. Really confused. How, you know, yeah. how many players, how long, what's it going to be? And I kind of like, I got a title in a place that was kind of really obsessing me and it started to take shape. The piece is called A Pacifying Weapon. And... Uh, and the, the sort of history of the recorder and the sort of fife and drum uh, as heralding sort of military, mm-hmm. uh, you know, approach or victory or, or what have you. And um, suddenly, at that point, I had a lot more ideas take shape. And that was a, you know, sort of a, an instance of the process that, had, that I described for you before not really working for me. And I had kind of a general shape. I had the architecture of the things. I went to Copenhagen. I spent a lot of time with Mikola going over the ranges of all the different recorders, what they can do, what they can't do, what is most idiomatic, most suitable for the instrument. Uh, what? How long will it still be continued to play once you set it on fire is probably a logical yeah, question yeah, that, I would that, ask at that yeah, point. Yeah, no, that's important. That's important. That I don't know. I did not think to ask her. You got to put that in there, man. Come on. Her back. Anyway, yeah. go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but that was, that was an instance of that process that I described before, not quite working for me. So I had to kind of overhaul that. And then I went back to that sort of, by the time I was on the whatever second movement or whatever, that one wrote itself pretty quickly, you know? Uh, but anyway, the, the whole the whole piece took me eight or nine months to write uh, and it's done now. And uh, so the process is always fluid. It's always very mobile. Uh, the, the difference between now and what I was when I was 23 years old and single and living by myself and suburban Detroit was, uh, you know, I have a family now, I have a very busy, very demanding job. I live in New York City and all the distractions and craziness that comes from that. Um, and it, you have a cell phone in your pocket that has the full width and access to the full width and breadth of human knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, right. I mean, talk yeah, what about, else do you want? But I mean, if, if you're not distracted, you, right. you know. Nobody needs a recorder concerto with all that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but thus we soldier on. Um, I don't have the ability to, you know, wipe away six hours on a uh, on a Sunday yeah. afternoon to do that stuff. I write music in segments generally smaller than 10 minutes. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, this I'm asking this question on behalf of all musicians who are not classical musicians. Now, I mean, I've been playing for a very long time, and I tinker with lots of different instruments. So I could close my eyes, and if, if I was deaf, I could play the guitar, and I would know exactly what I was hearing, hmm. you know, pretty much. I would know the notes that were coming out of my instrument. Right, and you know, and I can do that on a few different instruments. I'm no genius, mm. but I can do that. But you're writing for instruments that you don't even play, right? So, in that sense, are you like I said? I'm asking this on behalf of all musicians who are not like classical composers. Uh, are you hearing all these things in your head? The timbre of that instrument. You know, you write a line for clarinet, mm-hmm. and there's your piano part. Can you just look at the score and think it and do it? Um, I, I have the ability to be able to read lines and read scores and at least kind of get a rough understanding of, of what it is to sound like mm-hmm. uh, if played properly. And, um, 
you know, uh, notated music, you, you know, you're playing what is written there. Um, but I don't always trust myself. I don't have perfect pitch. Uh, I have relative pitch. I can tell intervallic distances. It's a curse, I think. Yeah, I think it is My a curse. My friends that I know who have perfect pitch, like, it's hard to go to concerts with him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had a friend in college, like, we would go yeah. to the arcade and play video games, and, like, you know, he would just be telling me the, the, the intervals of Donkey Kong or whatever as it was playing. I was just like, man, that's got to be really unpleasant for you. And he's like, oh, yeah. it's, it's terrible. You yeah. Know? Go on. I'm uh, sorry. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I don't have any, in any of that and, and any of those skills, but I do have an ear that I think I've relied on because, as a, you know, growing up as a guitar player and not reading music, uh, I wanted to recreate what Angus Young could do or Eddie Van Halen or Jimmy Page or whatever. And you really rely on your ear to, to do that. It's not, you know, that a lot of great rock and pop stuff. And then I really got into progressive rock, King Crimson and, and, and Frank Zappa, and then even more so punk stuff, Ramones and The Clash. And uh, none of that lends itself to like notated music, even though it can be done. Just really suck the soul out of the Why would you? Why is would the you? question. Exactly. So, you know, you're going to do Janie Jones by The Clash, you know, and notate that whole thing. It would make no sense. Um, but, you know, you really learn to like use your ear, trust yourself, and trust your ear to, to make those decisions. And that has right. kind of carried me over to the, the listener that I am now. Yeah. But I still don't always trust myself. So, in a practical sense, then, like when you're composing, do you, is there like, do you keep the guitar right there? Do you, a uh, piano right there? Like a combination of them? Like, so when you write a line for a piccolo or what, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, you know? Uh, Usually the piano, in my case. Okay. I mean, I still really rely on it, even though I don't perform on it, I don't play it well. To be able to pick out the pitches and make sure that that's what I want to do, and here's a line coming up here, and that I can play that particular line, or I can you know, really understand how it fits together. Uh, I use the piano. I, I rarely, if ever, use the guitar. In fact, I find the guitar the most intimidating instrument to write for. Yeah. Uh, probably because I played it and play it. Um, I find it... Uh, absolutely mysterious to me to write notated well music. it's enigmatic like on a piano people don't ever get down to the nuts and bolts of this but on a piano there is one uh middle c right there's only one place to play middle c everything you've ever heard played on the piano when somebody's hitting middle c it's right there yeah, that's the do. only one on the instrument you have four times on a guitar on a guitar yeah. you have four different places you can play the same note mm -hmm. in different notes you've got four you've got multiple combinations and you can do dissonances with strange things when moving up the neck and then for god's sakes you can change the tuning yeah. or put a capo on it. Like it's this enigmatic, like people think guitar is a simple instrument because it's very accessible initially. Right. You learn a couple chords, you got three chords, you got the truth, boom, yep. you got a song, right? Not, it's, you know, if you really get into there and do what, you know, and find out what it's capable of doing, it's a very, very deep instrument. Yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating. I agree with you, man. Um, let's see here. We've got about enough time for one more piece. I don't want to take up your entire day. Yeah. Uh, you've got to get out into the sunshine. You New York people, you're all pasty. You're white. You've got to get a little sun in your yeah, skin. So right. what's this? Not, no, don't, no apologizing. What's this last piece we're going to hear? Uh, I think we're going to hear uh, a piece of mine called Ampersand. Ampersand meaning and. Uh, and um, this was a commission by uh, a great violinist named uh, Julia Sakharova, who commissioned this piece for me from me uh, a few years ago for violin and piano. And uh, I really wanted to emphasize the sort of dual nature of the two instruments, you know, how both of them have very tricky soloistic and showy part, but I hope with some drama and pathos and whatever else is in there. Uh, and uh, she uh, was premiered at Steinway Hall in New York in 2004, I believe, uh, went on to record it and perform it several times. And um, yeah, 
There it is. Okay, this is the piece Ampersand, the composer Sean Hickey on Independence Day. Thank you. 
This is Ampersand, the composer, Sean Hickey, S-E-A-N, Sean, H-I-C-K-E-Y, Brooklyn-based composer. His works have been performed all over the world and continue to be performed all over the world. Uh, we've got just about enough time. Like, I wanted to get just a couple last questions in before I kick you on out of here, because we're almost done here. Uh, the first of which is, like, now that you're, you know, a big, famous Mr. Classical composer guy, you know, you certainly used to, I mean, I've heard you reference the Ramones. I've heard you reference King Crimson. I've heard you reference Van Halen. I've heard you reference all these artists. Like, in the realm of being a classical composer in the new millennium, uh, do you still go back and listen to these types of artists? Because I could feel like like a lot of comp- classical people that I know who are heavy classical people, um, they're very snooty, for lack of a better word. Hmm. There is no Van Halen in their world. Yeah. Like, if it's not complex, or it's not Bartok, it's not 
Rachmaninoff or whatever. It's they don't want to hear it, or that their the worlds are very delineated. Right. You know, they might they might their friend might drag them to see a folk concert, but then it's like, oh, it's just a folk musician, whatever. Like, what is your view? I mean, to me, music's all part of the same thing. Yep. And I may not like some or may not like others, but I feel like there's good stuff in everything. I agree. And wh- where do you where do you sit on that? I agree with it entirely. Uh, what you say there, I think you would be somewhat shocked to talk to. Uh, many of my peers or whatever, especially those that are uh, millennials and younger, so say age 30, 35 or younger, those are the people for whom genre means very little. Right. There's no bin at the record store. There's no bin at the record store. They don't there's have no the place. Store. Yeah, there's no record store. They don't walk to the country section or find the hip-hop section. Uh, and, you know, some people have taken the last couple of years to use, using the word post-genre. Uh, which I think is kind of kind of silly because we do like to categorize things and put them in boxes. Well, you have to, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, just to... You just, know. just to understand it. When you're going out on a girl with a girl for the first date, you got to know what she likes and doesn't like, right? Because you can't just list all anyway. Go on. Right. But I think you'd be better served to list the bands you like, or the artists, or the composers, or the whatever, than you would to say like I like hip hop, I like you know whatever polka. Uh, she's not going to go out with you again if you say polka. Depends. Maybe. Maybe, maybe in Poland. She might be from Wisconsin, man. Yeah, that's true. Or Poland. Or Poland. Yeah. There's a Polish restaurant right around the corner, actually. Oh, good. And I, I have two accordions. I can't play any polka on it, but oh, okay. <laughs> I love the accordion. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. I think the, uh, you know, I think you'd be surprised to know that that you know many of the composers working today, many of the, many of the young and contemporary musicians, uh, they're listening to a, listening to as much diverse music as I did in my youth because I felt that way when I was a teenager. That you know I could listen to whatever Van Halen and I could put on Stravinsky record and I uh, I grew up in Detroit so I. Um, I grew up on a very, very important thing for any Detroiter and certainly for any Canadian, and that's the CBC, Canadian mm-hmm. Broadcasting Corporation, yes. who in their late night shows, Brave New Waves and Nightlines, played the world's music without genre for from 11 p.m. till 5 a.m. every day. And uh, I stayed up late most of my youth trying to tape as much stuff as I can, listen to as much stuff, and, you know, dive into, yeah. into all of this stuff. And that, to me, was you know such a great education. And now, with all of the services, whether they be streaming services or whether you, whatever your habits are as a listener, if you have habits, you're able to access the world's music at a fingertip in, the, in this yeah. little computer we carry around in our pocket. Yeah, unbelievable. Like, why would anybody feel any real fidelity to a genre for other than one reason? They liked a particular song in that genre. And they wanted to explore further. Right. And they want to the find way, other similar artists. They want to find other similar artists or similar songs or similar, you know, sounds or whatever. And I think that's a great and beautiful thing. You know, the world of discovery. I have a son who will turn 11 tomorrow. He is an absolute dubstep freak. You know what dubstep is? I did not. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I couldn't pick it out of a police lineup, but I know that something exists called right, dubstep. Right. And it's, I have relatives uh, who are younger than me who like it. Yes. Well, let's leave it at that. Yeah. It is... Uh, it's been a learning process for, for me over the last uh, year since he got into it. And, um, you know, it's this whole thing that he Happy kind of birthday, discovered. Happy birthday, by the way. Happy Thank birthday. You. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, what a great thing. You know, he probably wouldn't have been able to find that music 10 years ago on his own. But because of, you know, we got computers laying around and stuff like that, he lo- you know, latched onto it. And now he's, you know, got this burgeoning love for the genre that I, that I knew nothing about. What do you think is the future of music? I know it's a very strange crystal ball because we're in a very strange place right now, a place of change, place of transition. Hmm. What do you, I mean, you're getting paid, you know, you've got a day job in music and you're a composer as well. 
Hmm. Um, you know, or, or even let's simplify it. Like, what is your future in music? Well, I hope to be continuing to do it. <laughs> I hope to be continuing to make it. I can't imagine a life for myself without making music. Uh, and that goes from day one that day in the, with the guitar in the back seat. That was me noodling around on the open strings trying to make music. Uh, I can't imagine life without it. I think of it all the time. I dream in music. Um, I uh, hope to have more time to dedicate to really working on my craft, maintaining the relationships needed to deliver the best music and the time that it takes to dive in to this pursuit, which for me is pretty solitary. Uh, I like to do things alone. There's no doubt about it. Um, I happen to have a job where very little time is spent alone. There's a lot of talking and interfacing and meeting a lot of people all the time and a ton of travel. Um, so that music to me is both as, uh, an escape and, and, an, and a necessity too. It's just like eating. Yeah. You know, you have to do it. Eating and bathing, it's not, it's not negotiable. I call it a compulsion. Compulsion. For me, it's a compulsion. And I, I try to keep it as healthy as I can. I yeah. can't not do it. Yeah. Every time I'm out, every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Yeah. And, then the, and, the, and I guess the people who suffer are all my ex-girlfriends and the fact that I've never had a nice stereo. <laughs> I spent all my money on music gear. <laughs> always have. Anyway, okay, we're, we're up to our final question, man. Again, I, it's, it's been so wonderful to talk to you about these kinds of things. It's been wonderful. I hope the listeners dug it because it's, it's, a, it's a slight departure. Uh, but I love having this kind of thing on the show because it is for me, to, that, that sounds flippant, but it's all part of the same thing. Yep. This big, it's all vibration. Which is the same thing anything ever is, man. Yeah. It's all vibration. So the final question is, what makes you happy? What makes me happy? What makes you happy? Good Lord. What kind of show is this? Uh, <laughs> the best kind. <laughs> right. Um, well, I mean, vis-a-vis -vis what we're talking about here, I mean, as I said, the, the, the desire to make music and what to me is a real compulsion, or as you say, or a need, um, that makes me happy. Um, I really like the thing, the thing that I think about, you know, especially in my middle age, is that I'm unbelievably nostalgic for a lot of things uh, that I was not even just a few years ago. Um, and I kind of get touched by and moved by a lot of things that I wasn't even a few years ago. And being a father is a great way to really get in touch with a lot of that stuff, uh, whether you plan on it or not, or like it or not. Uh, and I like talking, especially to younger musicians, about entrepreneurship, about how to make a living, how to work and hone one's craft. And I'm really inspired by all of the, the, the people that I meet with that are doing some pretty cool and visionary things that I felt was not available to me when I was that age. And the fact that music is this thing that binds us together in a sort of global community, and it might yeah. sound a little hokey or whatever, but... I don't think so. I mean... To, to me, it's Those just of like, us who understand what that compulsion is or understand what it's like to have that obsession in your life, yeah. like it makes perfect sense. It's the, and honestly, it's, the, it's probably the most logical thing I'll ever hear. And, and that's why I can't imagine a world with, you know, you said, like, what's the future of music? I, you know, I would just say, well, I think it's going to be here. You know, yeah. I think it'll survive. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, that to me, I mean, that, that, that happiness, I mean, I'm, I guess I, personally, I'm less concerned about happiness than I am about peace. Mm -hmm. That's a very different thing, and, and peace only comes to me when my particular art uh, is is indulged. Yeah, good, good answer, man. Uh, this is going to be kind of it's not really a question, but a bonus thing. You said you lecture about these sorts of things, but like, what's the like the one best piece of advice you would give to a young musician? Hmm. Uh, network as much as possible. Attend as many performances and concerts 
Sorry, that's too, uh, and I probably go on, but really get yourself out there in the ways in which you can meet people. That's the one thing I probably didn't do in my early years, and you know I could blame where I lived and the time or the climate or whatever. Um, but I happen to live in a city where doing that is rather easy. And New York City, there's kind of less social inhibitors because we're all kind of thrown in together in a small space. Um, go out there and meet people. That's where I think the magic happens. You can, yeah. you know, you can tweet up the the wazoo, and you can have the greatest website, and you can have all these clips, and you can have a YouTube channel, and you can, you know, really harness the potential of all the technology out there. But there's no real, real substitute for face-to-face meetings, conversations, talking to people about what what is meaningful to you. Yeah. I always remember, folks, there are no audiences or potential customers or listeners in your living room. <laughs> They're all out there on the other side of the door. That's yeah. what I always like to think yep. about it. So uh, let's talk just about, we're done pretty much, but I just want to talk about your performances you've got coming up. Yeah. Uh, just not too long ago, you were in Prague. Yep. Uh, doing uh, Sin, how did you, Sinfonetta? Is that Sinfonetta, yeah. Sinfonetta. Two so, performances um, there. And uh, <laughs> so cool. I'd love to go to Prague. Uh, take me with you next time. Sure. I'll be your cabin boy or sure. what, what do you need? I can carry, uh, I'll carry this something. <laughs> uh, June 30th is probably the next thing coming up. It's not too terribly long away. Your clarinet concerto uh, is going to be performed in Siberia of all places? Yes. How on earth does that happen? Uh, same artist that you heard earlier, conductor Vladimir Landa and Alexander Federstein, clarinet. Uh, Vladimir uh, conducts an orchestra there. There's a Siberian symphony. Who knew? Uh, they are based in Krasnoyarsk, which happens to be a city of about two million people on the Yenisei River. Holy Lord! Yep, about nine. Uh, I don't. Know, I could be wrong about that. It was something like a six, seven-hour flight from Moscow, so it's not exactly on the wow. road to anywhere, unless you're yeah. on the Silk Road. Um, unless you're going over the North Pole. Well, it's, I mean, it's to the east of, of, of Moscow. It's actually right. east and, and to the south, but it's a long way from anything. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted to program the piece, and this is, you know, this is my work doing its work. Well, you'll be so there a good time of the year, June 30th. You're close to the solstice. Yeah. Long days. Anyway, uh, and then you've got something called Single Malt. What is this? In September, it's in London. What so, is that? Single Malt is a, uh, a string orchestra piece uh, commission that was commissioned by... Uh, by a great man, his name is Martin Anderson, who runs a record label called Takata Records and a, and a, a, a Takata Press. And his uh, his partner passed away um, from uh, with a pretty pretty quick uh, passing. And because Martin has, has supported contemporary music in his career so uh, so thoroughly, rather than do you know some big funeral or memorial uh, of uh, for her, uh, he commissioned a bunch of individual pieces from. A bunch of individual wow. composers, and I was one of them. Wow, what a lucky thing! Yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Really, really nice. And then you'll be in Copenhagen, in Denmark. That's in September. Yep. Uh, that is uh, that's your recorder concerto. We talked about a little bit about that yeah. before. And then later in September, oh, that's the same thing. It's the last thing. It's also it's the next day. It's the two paired things. Yeah, two yeah. nights. Recording, there. recording there as well. Yeah, very nice. Thank well, you. Well, Sean, man, thank you. Thank you, Joe. I could talk to you all day, um, but uh, you know, the next talk will have to be over beer. We'll do it. And we'll have to save that for other people. Something so tells be sure me it'll to be soon. Right. There's another song, actually, of Sean's. Uh, Tangro, uh, pronounce this again? Tango Grotesco. Grotesco. Uh, it's a solo guitar piece, but that's on the web exclusive piece. So people should check that out. So go to the Independence Day website, indepthday.com, and check that out. Also, if you want to hear more about Sean and what he does, go to seanhickey.com, S-E-A-N, Sean, the Irish Sean. Also, soundcloud.com uh, slash shickey. So, Sean, thank you very, very much for being on the show. We appreciate it thank so you, much. Joe.
Good to be here. So thanks to Sean Hickey, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The nomadic Tony Tonelok Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. Be uh, sure to check them out. They're from Ann Arbor. Now, your old stomping ground's pretty close to there. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. As I like to say, if you do anything today, please be good to one another.